If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Nurse Wellness Podcast, empowering nurses to manage stressors so they can intentionally reconnect with their purpose, optimize their wellness, and ultimately show up in the world the way they want to be seen. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Wendy Garvin-Mayo, your stress solution strategist. In this podcast, you'll receive actionable stress management tips, insightful interviews, and strategies that focus on inspiring you to be your best, do your best, and give your best. With that, let's get started. Hi, Kim. Welcome to the Nurse Wellness Podcast. I'm so excited that you are here. How are you today? Hi, Wendy. Thank you for having me. I'm great. Yourself? I'm good. I'm good. Why don't we start off by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, my my name is Kim and my last name is also Kim. Um, my middle name is Anne, Kim and Kim. And my parents chose to name me that in 1976. I have a lot of jokes about, you know, what were they thinking and all of that, but it's a pretty unique story. So um, my parents, my mother is Caucasian. She's deceased now. And she uh, grew up in rural Maine and she moved to Hartford, Connecticut, met my dad, who was an immigrant from Cuba, who is half Korean and half Mexican. And um, they raised me in Hartford, Connecticut. And they told me that they thought it was cute. And that if I married and lost my last name, Kim, that I would always have the first name, Kim, and I could pass it on and kind of keep it in the family. My father had no sons. Um, and then my story gets a little deeper and I, I try to live very transparently. It, it works for me on my own wellness journey. So I discovered some years later that I'm biologically half Peruvian. And so I've been kind of trying to settle on how do I identify now? But my dad raised me and really instilled his Cuban values. So it's really who I am. Like this, the dishes we eat at home. It's the music we listen to. It's how we celebrate holidays and culture and stuff. So um, I'm a unique individual, but Kim works for me. That is awesome. I love that story. I yeah, love that story. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think it's so important to get to know people so you can actually hear that story opposed to just making assumptions, right? Yes. So it shows the importance of pausing and getting to know people opposed to just, you know, poo-pooing them or just kind of moving along. Yeah, I think one of the lessons I've learned through my own life and then meeting others is often people's names hold a big significance for them, right? It's like a family story. It's a tradition. In some cases, there's a lot of hurt behind it and where the name came from, how it got passed down. Um, but I also caution people to think about, and this is something I've had to learn myself, is, is your curiosity about someone's name and what it means to their ethnicity or race 
more important than the harm they may feel by being asked that question and being made to feel they don't belong. So being a half white woman who presents as white, the assumptions I'm white. And so I don't experience the racism that may come with a question like, where are you from? And where, you know, where's that name from? But I did get questions a lot. Like, did you marry someone who's Korean? Cause it's known as a Korean name. Were you adopted? Um, just questions about like, is this an error? Is this a mistake? Like in elementary school is a joke every year as the teacher would call like the roll call for a school, all the kids would giggle because they'd be like, well, someone made a mistake and wrote Kim twice here. What's your last name? And I'd say Kim. And one year, like the teacher was like, don't sass me, girl. What's your last name? And I'm like, it's, it's Kim. And the kids would all laugh. So I just learned over the years how I get a little offended when people ask me when I got my second vaccine uh, woman asked me at the vaccine clinic, she was like, that's the strangest name I've ever heard. And again, you, people have thoughts. I have thoughts, but just thinking of what it's like me 45 years into this journey being asked, you know, as soon as I could speak for myself, what's that name about? It gets old. I've heard every joke and it's not funny to me anymore. Yes. And and it makes me think of it's not the what, it's the how. Yes. Right. Like, and people are not conscious about what they say or how it would land on someone else. They just speak. Yeah. I made that mistake though. And I think I'm trying to be really um, authentic with my, my journey and learning. So I met a student when I worked at a nursing institution and my ex-husband is from Ghana, West India. So I'm become, I have become familiar with last names in the region. His grandparents were from Nigeria and I, I interpreted the last name of this individual as potentially being West Indian, uh, West African rather. So I wanted authentic, like my goal was to connect with them, not to make them feel that I was identifying them as, or I was othering them. But what I said was, oh, um, where are you from? And I was meaning, where's your last name from? But the person told me, well, I'm from the town over from where the school is. And he kind of shut me down. And I realized like, oh, I'm sounding as if I'm kind of questioning your belonging and appropriateness of being here and like that you're an outsider, which is really not what I meant, but that's what my words would have conveyed. And so I, I became, uh, I would say, colleagues with him, and we had an amicable relationship, but I felt bad about making him feel that way and about how many times he's heard that. So that's been my learning curve. Like, I'm curious, but does the curiosity hurt other people? And where do I find balance in that? Because I just love connecting with people. So how can I find another way to connect that doesn't make the person feel othered? Because it's not pleasant. Yeah, you bring up a good point. So what would your suggestion be for someone listening who, you know, a lot of people are in healthcare have have different names, what would be an appropriate way to start that conversation? I think um, leaving topics like race and origin alone, because it just is going to drive that othering sense, and more just try to have like a, a, a much slower connection. I think sometimes in our desire to move our day along, and we want to identify as an ally or like, I'm a good person and you're safe with me. We want to rush along to that by finding those commonalities or those intersections and authentic relationships just take time. And so just maybe talking about how's your day going or keeping it more simple. Um, I really enjoyed speaking with you and just realizing that maybe you'll learn that person's story a little later. It's just not necessarily those first three sentences. It's just too soon. And I think people, people on guard. 
Yes. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> Can you talk to us a little bit about your uh, your professional um, yes. life? What do you do yes. professionally? And yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, I jumped right into who I'm. Who am I? Because that's been like my theme for the past couple of years, trying to figure out who I am with this new information. Um, but professionally, I. Um, chose to join nursing after my mother, who's deceased now, went through some health issues when I was 18. And then my daughter at age four had a brain tumor and later developed type one diabetes. And we went through a very difficult time and I was learning so much so quickly about caring for both her and my mom um, that I decided to kind of jump into my wildest fears and dreams at the same time and go for it. I really wasn't a strong high school student. We had a lot of um, family issues going on. I had unstable housing and I just really wasn't in a good place in high school. But as I became a mother, I became very clear about wanting to change our family story and kind of break some cycles and plant some, some roots. And so I had a social worker that was um, very impactful in my life and really would talk to me about, you know, what is it that you want to do? And I was like, I don't know, but I know working as a nursing assistant, you know, for 40 years is, uh, can I do that? Am I going to have the life I want? She was like, why don't you just take a course and see how it is? And I remember saying, I can't, I was a horrible student in high school. Like I, I just didn't have any confidence and she just plants, you know, takes one person to say, yes, you can. And she did that for me. And I started taking courses at Capital Community. I did all my prerequisites intending to go to their program. Then their program had a wait list. So I was accepted, but put on a wait list. And I happened to go to an information session at University of St. Joseph, which for me at that time was St. Joseph College. And I decided to transfer there and complete my bachelor's degree in 2009. And um, my daughter was in elementary school living with type 1 diabetes. It was a lot to juggle. Um, I remember her school nurse. And I spoke like every day. It was just a lot. And then unfortunately, my mother died my junior year of nursing school and oof, I didn't think I was going to make it. It was really difficult for me. Um, my sister, my older sister is the only other person that went to college. And I just remember coming home and asking when my mother was alive to help support me with, you know, childcare or assisting with preparing a meal. My dad would do the same. And I just... I kept going, but man, it was really hard. And I had a pivotal moment in my nursing studies at St. Joe's where I saw the first Latina nurse educator I had ever seen in my life. Um, and I had this epiphany that, wow, I can complete this program. You're going to be able to do it, but you can also do more like this. Don't set your, your limits. So, so low, not that nursing is low. I don't mean it that way, but you can do more. You can do whatever you want to do. So I just felt really empowered by her presence. I ended up having her for clinical. She was tough. And, you know, the reputation about her was like, she did not play and she was tough. And my classmates didn't didn't like that, but I loved it. I was like, I want to be ready every day. I want to be like her. I want to emulate that ex high expectation of we're going to really take good care of our patients. And so I, I did complete the program on time. Um, I do have to say though, I, I didn't pass patho farm with a required grade. I needed, I think, a, um, like a 73 and I had a 71.5 or a 72, something like that. And I had to like 
stay out and, and catch back up with the next rotating group. And that was difficult. Um, I think there's something to look at with students transitioning from community colleges or high schools that don't have strong sciences. It's a lot to go into a university or college and take those hard science courses. But um, I completed my bachelor's and then I worked at St. Francis Hospital in a med surge unit and had a really good experience working bedside. And while I was at St. Francis, they had a cohort with Sacred Heart University. And so I was able to get my master's degree as a in the clinical nurse leader track. There was a plan to implement those roles and that went away, unfortunately. But um, just for your listeners, you always want to be looking at opportunities. And so that particular program offered a significant discount to employees because it was a collaboration and the hospital gave us a 1% interest rate for a loan for the balance. And so I had $40 taken out of my paycheck for four years to pay for my master's degree. So it was really painless. Um, and so it was just like a perfect opportunity for me to get it in a way that was financially achievable in uh, a setting where everyone was working. And so it was really conducive to the work and, and school lifestyle and um, that was my, my educational career for nursing. Awesome. And what do you do currently today? Yeah. So a lot has changed since my initial job. I started off in med surge. Um, I completed my master's degree during my master's program. All of the projects or papers I could write about, I always chose diabetes because I lived it so much with caring for my daughter at home. And eventually she took over her own care. My mother had type two diabetes and they were diagnosed about six months apart. So I learned a ton about how different the diseases are. And I remember um, my like final project, I guess my thesis project, I helped the hospital revise their hypoglycemia policy. And so in that work, I got introduced further into this role of what's called a certified diabetes educator, which is now renamed to certified diabetes education and care specialist. Um, and so I had an opportunity to work for the ACO arm of a hospital and work as a nurse navigator. And they in turn wanted to bring on a diabetes educator. And they offered for me to um, take like a prep course and sit for that exam. And so I had then become a certified diabetes educator and for the past six years have worked kind of both at the same time in nursing academic either settings as a clinical instructor, I've taught some courses in person, and then also in the diabetes world, I've mostly worked inpatient, um, helping hospitals facilitate a, like a full spectrum diabetes program. And currently I work for Sohn Health, who is um, affiliated with Trinity Health in New England. And I was hired through a grant to contact adult patients living with type two diabetes and really investigating social influencers of health and seeing if I can make any impact on helping the patients access information, transportation, um, nutritious foods, and support over the phone and, and helping them achieve their health goals. Yes, very nice and very important work. Um, yes. And this is where I want to kind of bridge the two because we talked about mm -hmm. your identity and now bringing you into the healthcare arena. 
Um, and I want to kind of touch on the diversity, equity, and inclusion piece because yes. that's where where we align. Uh, we actually, you know, sat on the uh, Connecticut Nurses Association uh, panel together mm-hmm. to really talk about that. So I really love to tap into that a little bit. And as you're aware, that the National Commission on Racism in Nursing uh, released mm-hmm. their survey which, you know, identified what, you know, many minority nurses have experienced or are experiencing on a daily basis. Um, How do, you know, you being who you are, you know, being, having a mom who's Caucasian and a dad who's considered a minority, right? Mm -hmm. Being in the healthcare system, how, how have, has your experience been um, in, in healthcare in terms of racism, diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah, um, it's, so it's all very much intertwined, who I am and then entering the nursing workforce. Um, I guess I acutely became aware in the diabetes space in regards to the disparities. And um, as that became my peak interest, when I would travel to Cuba to visit my father, I would lo- I would ask a lot of questions about medications and supports there and trying to understand what was happening in the greater Hartford community with um people of color and Latinos in particular, but um, I guess just coming up as a child, I had a very unique viewpoint because I would see how the world uh, would treat my parents very differently. So I would see my mother navigate going to the store, interacting with police, talking to teachers at my school, you know, people just respecting her, not being rude or nasty with her. In contrast, I would see my dad get harassed, um, you know, called various names. Again, my dad was othered all the time because of him being Asian and indigenous Hispanic. So he's Mexican and Korean and he's darker complected. Um, He would get a lot of questions about his ethnicity and he didn't speak English as a primary language. So you get a lot of questions with language. so how it translates into my nursing space is that, again, when I noticed that this was my first Latina teacher, then I was like, well, wow, I don't think I've even noticed how white all my educators have been throughout my education. But specifically in nursing, I had all white female educators. And I remember when I graduated nursing school, the chair of the nursing division had like exit interviews with all the graduating seniors and said, you know, do you have any feedback or questions? And I said, yeah, why aren't there more diverse nurse faculty here? It's concerning to me that I only had one Latina and I didn't have any African-American or black or any Asian and really no males. And I was just very curious, like, why is that? And so I remember her saying, well, we don't tend to get a lot of diverse candidates, but it's not that we wouldn't welcome them. So you should go back to school and you can, you know, be part of the change that you want to see. And that definitely was something that stuck with me. Um, But working in nursing, I just remember very sadly observing how patients were being treated. And so last week I attended the, I was a speaker with Dr. Lucinda Canty um, and two other panelists at um, the University of St. Joseph. They had their annual Nightingale lecture. And the, the topic was reckoning with racism in nursing. And there's a documentary that Dr. Canty's putting together. And I was interviewed for the documentary. And the story I shared was that there was a male patient who was Puerto Rican who um, had a very severe medical condition that caused lots of pain. And my colleagues were choosing to not administer his around-the-clock pain medications because they felt that he didn't look like he was in pain. That was their feedback. 
And I remember being approached by the palliative care team saying, you know, we really want you to have him every day you work, you speak Spanish, he kind you know, he, he likes when you're his nurse. And we're noticing when we look back, you're one of the only people actually administering the pain meds as we prescribe them. And I was a nurse maybe like a year and a year and a half. Thinking back, that's like so atrocious. But in the moment, all I could think of was absolutely, I'll do whatever I can to help this man, you know, have a better outcome or have a better day. And I remember one of my colleagues who happened to be my preceptor when I first started, and I had a really special place in my heart for her because she taught me so much. She was kind of like one of the mother hens on the unit. And um, she definitely took me under her wing. And I remember she came back into the lunchroom one day when I was there and she's talking about the same patient. And she's like, you know, why is that man always calling on the call bell in Spanish? People need to learn English if they want to live in this country. And I snapped for the first time ever at her because, again, she was my preceptor. I had a lot of respect for her. And I was like, you know, I think you forget who you're talking to. Do you remember me telling you my dad is Cuban and English is not his first language? That's really offensive. Um, but second of all, this gentleman's from Puerto Rico, he's, which is part of the United States. And why does he need to speak English? And I remember thinking back to my nursing school days of what I learned in that sometimes when people are in acute distress and this gentleman was in extreme pain, people often will go back to their primary language. So if we know this in a scientific, you know, um, fact, why can't we apply that? And he, he went on um, to leave our unit and go to a nursing home and he ended up passing away from hypoglycemia. So I just was so really connected to this gentleman. And, you know, I saw him as someone similar to my dad who just didn't get the care he needed. And the fact that there was no repercussions for people choosing not to administer orders was really the kind of, you know, breaking point of me realizing I'm either going to stay quiet about this stuff, or I'm going to be a, a voice for change. And where do I want to land on this? And that's really what triggered me becoming more active in a minority nursing organization and really just looking at who am I going to be at the end of the day. And it comes full circle because you were just saying that you can do more than just being a nurse. Yes. And that's what it really is. As a nurse, we can make a difference in our community. It's not mm -hmm. just at the bedside. It's what you do. Really, it's what you do outside of the bedside, right? What you're doing outside of the healthcare institution. Like you said, who are you, right? Mm -hmm. Not yeah. just that's but how are you having impact. So what organizations are you a part of and what initiatives yeah. are you involved in? Yes, I would love to talk about that. So my association is with um, the National Association of Hispanic Nurses, which is a mouthful. Our acronym is NAHN, N-A-H-N, and I'm part of the Harford chapter. And so we um, have been in existence going on 12 years. It was founded by four Hispanic or Latinx nurses who really wanted to see some representation and collective action for Hispanic or Latinx nurses. And I joined that organization. I want to say in the mid 2000s, no, later than that, 2010-ish, about there, 2011, somewhere around there is when it started. I was actually part of the Connecticut chapter with Maria Kroll for a brief period, probably close to a year. And I got pregnant and had my daughter and had stopped participating and then joined back with Hartford. So for Hartford, I served as the president in two, just looking back at the years, 2019 through 2021. And in my time as president, I was able to really get our chapter to look at 
kind of who are we in regards to anti-racism and looking at what are we doing about equity and inclusion and really kind of immersing myself in the statistics. So the statistics are that about 6% of Connecticut's nurses identify as Hispanic or Latino, Latinx. We use those terms interchangeably. Um, And I was just shocked at that number, given that we have such large cities with large Hispanic populations. I think we have like something like the the fifth largest Hispanic population, specifically of Puerto Ricans outside of the islands in the United States. Um, I know we have a large West Indian population in Hartford as well. And so I just was very drawn to my own experience and finding that when I would start to talk about these issues that I had concerns with or wanted to make a change with, I would meet nurses of color from other backgrounds who also wanted to make that change. So very early on, I learned that collaborating with other chapters, like the National Black Nurses Association has local chapters. The Northern Connecticut Black Nurses Association was one that we really consider ourselves like sister chapters at this point. We do a lot of initiatives together because we find that when we bring our students together, we're having, unfortunately, unpleasant experiences in their nursing programs or nurses who are practicing or experiencing racism as the commission found, right? that together there's a little more support and power and and unifying. So one of the things um, we're working on right now is as we went through the COVID pandemic, our nurses were extremely burnt out and our nurses were experiencing this like second layer of trauma where they were seeing more people of color dying from COVID. And so they had a different set of responsibility in trying to educate our communities and and feeling safe in taking the vaccine. And so we were tapped upon to do a lot of vaccine administration because we were more trusted. We had connections to the community in regards to places where hospitals could set up vaccine clinics. Um, But our nurses were just experiencing so much burnout. So at one of our meetings in 2021, we were talking about some statistics that had come out. There was an article in um, 2000 and, 2021 that found that female nurses were at double the um, were were dying by suicide at double the numbers of females from the general population and we were like wow this is really concerning and we took it a step further to just talk about like when was the last time any of us were educated about suicide prevention aside from what we needed to learn to care for hospitalized patients when they were on suicide prevention and having assessments routinely about feeling that they may want to harm themselves. And so we did a little digging and we found that there's a course um, called the Mental Health First Aid Course. And we learned that Wheeler Clinic offers this course and it's really not a, a high fee for someone to take the course, but we thought that if we investigated our members taking this course not only to position themselves to help their patients in a deeper way by understanding some of the things people may say if they're feeling suicidal, knowing how to refer them for resources, but really just identifying that as nurses of color within our own communities, we are identified as as reliable and trustworthy people. And so if we have community members, so this happens to all of us in nursing, we have our congregate, if we're in a, a church or a mosque or a synagogue, our congregation members may reach out to us and say, hey, my uncle was diagnosed with diabetes, Kim, can you help him? 
or, Hey, Wendy, you know, um, one of my cousins was diagnosed with a mental health condition. Do you have any information for me on stress management? So we're tapped on for our expertise by our patients, by our community members. And then in a, in a, in a, a way we really don't like to talk about very often is by our own family members. And then it gets really difficult to navigate through helping them. And for me, I'm kind of living on that dichotomy as well as being my, my oldest daughter's mom, but now being a nurse and a diabetes educator, I have the knowledge to help her, but I'm still her mom. Um, but to get back to the project, we ended up applying for a grant and we're awarded a grant by the Connecticut Health Foundation to have our members of non-Harford, Connecticut and Northern Connecticut Black Nurses Association all take this mental health first aid and then just check in to see how it helped them and what information was retained over time. One of the things we're really interested in looking at is how this may impact our own sense of self-care and also taking time off. And so what we hear a lot from our, our, our chapter members, nurses who are working, is that there's been a lot of pressure to not take time off because of staffing issues. Um, I think, you know, we tend to just be um, the, the type of people as nurses who just go, 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 go and give of ourselves. And even when the bucket's empty, we get up and go back tomorrow and start giving from the deficit. And it's really brought an awareness. COVID has really brought an awareness to nursing, to staffing issues, but into our own mental health. And so we really wanted to make sure that we were skilled and had the ability should one of our colleagues turn to us and say, this is different than me having a bad day. This is me feeling like I need to give up. Us being able to navigate through asking questions and knowing what to do to help them. Um, because as we know, the rates of suicide, even in uh, teens of color going up and it's, it's really concerning. So we felt like, okay, if it's not something that's being provided, cause we, a lot of our members were saying, well, no, the last time I had any education on this was in nursing school. And so that's no one's fault. It's just something we need to think about, you know, how do we keep ourselves educated? And this seemed like a great vehicle to start that. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing program. So can anyone, if someone's interested, someone listening and they're interested, can they tap into this mental health first program? Yeah. So this particular grant program um, project that we're working on is exclusively for our members because we secured enough funding for our members. But mental health first aid as a course is available and it's offered through many um, larger institutions. So people can go on Wheeler's website. Also the Institute of Living offers this course and there's a version for youth and there's a version for adults. And so I highly recommend anyone that works with students, whether it be in um, K through 12 or higher education, consider taking it. Many people can actually access the course for free through some of those institutions. Um, and in some cases, folks have to apply. But I'm noticing if you go on the on their websites and see kind of they'll list the courses that are offered. And some of them will show like they're exclusively for groups. So like ours is for our members. But I'm noticing a lot of like EMTs and firehouses and different organizations are going through this course because suicide is touching us all. And so we need to learn how to prevent it. And um, I'm always willing to direct people in the right direction. So if folks are looking for how to access information, um, yeah. there's a few different ways to get there. 
Yeah, no, I, I think it's really important. I think every healthcare institution should have this available to all of, you know, especially frontline, not just nurses, but all healthcare professionals, as well as nursing schools, schools of nursing. I think that's just a, um, a population that we really need to tap into and drill down and make sure that they are prepared mentally and physically for what they're about to launch into. Um, so Kim, how can people get in contact with you if they have questions and they want some assistance with accessing resources? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think um, specifically with college-age students, when we think about when the pandemic began, they went from being in the classroom to being remote in their dorm rooms to being sent home totally isolated from their friends at an age where those relationships are really impactful in their well-being. It's, I, I agree. And so student members of our organizations have been able to take the course, but um, I, I agree. It's really, really important. So um, we have social media pages. So non-Harford chapter, we have Twitter, we have Facebook, we have Instagram. Um, we do have a uh, website, although we tend to have a bit more information on our, our um, social media networks, we tend to try to share information about vaccine access or whatever's going on within Greater Hartford Region. Um, but if you just Google search non-Hartford, you're going to get all of that to pop up. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was such a Great conversation. So much information, so many nuggets. Uh, but before I let you go, can I take you through a rapid fire? Yeah. Awesome. So let me know the first thing that comes to your mind to answer the question or finish the sentence. Okay. Uh, wellness means? Self-compassion. I know I'm stressed when? Mm. I know I'm stressed when I'm not taking uh, enough deep breaths. And my go-to stress management solution is? Uh, I really like this technique by Mel Robbins of counting from uh, five backwards five, four, three, two, one. So I've been trying to explore our brain wiring and when we've had exposure to trauma, how we respond. And for me, having a child with a severe illness at a young age, I always tend to go like down the rabbit hole really quick. So I'm trying to work on that. And that helps to kind of just switch your mind around from going down the natural progression when you're feeling really, really stressed. So five, four, three, two, one, like that. Technique. I love that. And it's yeah. very simple, very simple. Just pause. And I love that. Uh, one thing you learned about yourself during this pandemic is. Yeesh, that's a good one. We're stronger together. Absolutely. And one word that describes you is. <laughs> Based on this interview, wordy. <laughs> I'm a chatty no. person. <laughs> no. um, I would say unique. I'm pretty unique. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. You are. Very unique. You are. Um, and if you can go anywhere in this world, where would it be? Physically? Uh, mentally, spiritually. I think each one of those would have a different location, but um, I love being in nature. I find a lot of stress relief from connecting with nature. Um, my therapist taught me a technique of grounding. And so sometimes I go barefoot near the roots of trees and hug the trees, touch the trees. I do it in my neighborhood. I know my neighbors think I'm a little crazy, uh, but I don't care. I find such a connection with nature. And so if I could go anywhere, it'd be for a nice long hike in, in a safe, safe environment. Yeah, no, that that's grounding. I was actually looking into that uh, recently. Very powerful. Very, very powerful. Yeah. Yes. And something people get wrong about you is. Mm. 
that my passion is aggressive. Mm. I tend to be very passionate about these things I'm interested in about. And I think because of the pain that comes with them, I come across as being aggressive and um, it's not my desire, but it's, it's, I perceive that way. Okay. And lastly, what's one piece of advice you want to leave our listeners with? Mm. I guess know that your worth has already been established. You're needed in nursing. We need diversity in nursing. We need people with lived experience in nursing to come help be the change we want to see. And I think when we go through things like imposter syndrome, we have to remember that kind of this Western mindset of, of us thinking we can't or we're not worthy or we don't belong is a total load of crap pardon my language, it's already been established that we come from excellence. And so when we're excellent in doing our thing, it's no surprise to me. This is just who we have always been. And it's no longer appropriate for us to have to dim our lights. We should just show up and be our, our full selves. Mm, well, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Kim. This was such a great experience. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. Between episodes, you can follow the Nurse Wellness Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Before you go, I would love to share a free mindfulness ebook with you. Go to stressblueprint.com backslash 35 and download your free copy. Until next time, go out and be your best, do your best, and give your best. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.